Today's passage is from John chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, and it can be found in the insert of your bulletin. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Well, it's really great to be、uh, back in Ambassador and to see so many、uh, familiar faces, so many good friends.、Um, I know that some of you have been asking where have we been. So、um, last year, Florence and I spent quite a number of months in France, and、uh, then in Hong Kong, when we've been here, we、um, were visiting some other churches, and one of them was quite near where we lived, and、uh, we've been attending that church, Watermark,、uh, for quite a number of months as well. So that's why you haven't seen us around, but we are still in Hong Kong, and.、Uh, It's very, very nice to be back in Ambassador this morning to be with you, and thank you for inviting me to bring God's word. And let's pray now that、uh, He will bless our time as we consider His word together. Our heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches us、uh, something of your mind, something of your desire, something of who you are. May. As we look at it this morning, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight, O God. May what we learn from your word、uh, percolate into our hearts and minds, and may we put it into practice for the glory of God. Amen. So abide in me, and I in you. John chapter fifteen is our text this morning. Thank you for reading it, Eliza, so nicely just a few、uh, moments ago. The professor in、uh, one of the courses that I've been taking at theological college engaged the students in a thought experiment. He asked us to consider if there was one verse in the Bible that captured the essence of Christian faith. First, we had to make a choice, of course, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But in a sense, that's pretty easy for Christians. That's already been done. Go to any Christian bookshop, and you can find lots of New Testaments there that have been separated out, if you like, 
from the whole Bible, the Old Testament. So we've made that choice already. Uh, We've got the New Testament. But in the New Testament, would you choose Paul's letters, John's letters, the Gospels? Well, I think that you'd have to pick the Gospels because they're the ones, the the books that relate the, the historical narrative of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. But then if there was one Gospel above the other three, which of the four Gospels would you pick? And perhaps it might be John, because John's Gospel is unique. It's not one of the synoptics. It just really gets intimate with the Savior, with Jesus. It gives us glimpses of him that are different and, as I say, quite unique. So then finally, in John's Gospel, is there a verse, is there a sentence that gives us uh, that essence, that distills the Christian message um, into, into one sentence, one phrase, if you like. And the professor suggested that you pick John 15, verse 4, which says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, just before we proceed any further, a reminder that there is an insert in the bulletin and it does give the outline of the talk. So you can follow through there. And if you look at the reference verses in the bottom uh, of that insert, then um, you can figure out how well I'm doing in the sermon and what, what stage we're at in the points. But the outline is in that bulletin. So to come back to this thought experiment, you might think that it's not, uh, you might agree with him or disagree with the professor, you might even think that it's inappropriate to try to find the core of the Christian truth in just one verse. But it did get me thinking, and I suppose that's what uh, theological college is all about, to get you thinking. What does Jesus say here that is so impactful, that is so relevant, so important for Christians to understand and to embrace? What does it mean to abide in Christ? What does it mean that Christ abides in us? What does bearing fruit mean? Why is it that without him we can do nothing? And so already there are really good questions that we must ask as we come to this one verse to figure out what is the essence of the Christian faith. So today I want to look at John 15 verses 1 to 11 in three ways. First, we'll ask that question, what does it mean to abide in Christ? What is, the, what is so essential to its meaning? Then secondly, we'll ask, what is the uh, purpose of Christ abiding in, in us? What is the continuous purpose of Christian living? And thirdly, we'll look at the end result. But most of the time will be spent in exploring the words that are on the screen right now. John 15, verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Many of you, of course, know this verse very well. It's a very familiar, famous verse even. And the... The text of John 15, the context of John 15, or the setting, is that Jesus was speaking to his disciples. 
It was a Passover feast. It was the night before his crucifixion. And he was uh, having that last supper, if you like, celebrating it with his disciples. At this point, however, when he said these words, one of the disciples is missing because Judas has already left the upper room to go about his wicked scheme of betraying Jesus and delivering him to the Jewish authorities. But Jesus continues to teach the eleven and he uses this metaphor of a vine and its branches, something they would have been very familiar with in Palestine. He continues to teach them and he declares, I am the true vine, with the emphasis on the true. Because that, this implies that there's a false vine or there's um, a useless vine. And the disciples immediately would have known that Jesus was talking about the people, the nation of Israel, the covenant people of God. The vineyard imagery was a common one throughout Jewish literature. And Israel, the nation, was uniquely chosen by God to be his covenant people. And in the Jewish literature, it is sometimes described, the nation, the people of God, the nation of Israel was described as God's vineyard or God's vine. They were his covenant people. They were given a task to do. They were to remain true and faithful to Yahweh, to the Lord their God. They were to be a channel to bring God's blessing on the whole world. They weren't just to keep it to themselves, but they failed. Why? Because they chased after other gods. They weren't true to the God of heaven alone. They didn't live for God or deliver the message that he wanted them to deliver. And so eventually he judged them. They were exiled. They didn't declare God's supremacy. God's sovereignty, God's uniqueness, God's rulership that was meant to be known throughout the whole world. It was meant to be proclaimed by the Jews, but they failed to deliver. One of the Psalms, Psalm 80, really pinpoints this thought. It says uh, in Psalm 80, Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You, d you cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. And the disciples would have known that, Sam and known that it referred to Israel, because this vine, Israel, was in a desperate state. It was a renegade vine. It was un, untended. It was unkempt and wild. Israel had abandoned its responsibilities. They had broken their covenant. They had deserted and abandoned their God. But Jesus, in contrast to the nation of Israel, he is the true vine. He is the true Israel, if you like. He fulfilled all that the Father wanted of him, all that God wanted him to do. And that's why he says in verse 10 of our passage, I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. The true vine. I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And the implication being Israel, the nation, the so-called people of God had not remained in God's love because they had not kept 
his commandments. So that's the background, that's the context. Let's move to the essential meaning. Let's turn to our question about what it means to abide in Christ and he in us. The word abide in English actually isn't a word that we use very much these days. It seems a bit old-fashioned, doesn't it? We don't use it. We might rather say, live in me, or reside here, or take up your residence, or make your home here. In fact, the NIV translates it differently. It says, remain in me. And that's a good translation because it also emphasizes a sense of continuing in Christ, ongoing. It's not a one-off experience, but it's a suggestion that we rest in Christ, we reside in Christ, we remain in Christ. It's maintaining that ongoing union with our Savior. Bishop R.C. Ryle put it like this, wonderful um, words as he explained. Um, He was a 19th century uh, Anglican pastor and author, and he, he wrote, What does it mean? Abide in me, cling to me, stick fast to me, live the life of close and intimate communion with me, get nearer and nearer to me, roll every burden on me, cast your whole weight on me, never let go your hold on me for a moment. This is the language of close and intimate union. It's the language of love. It's the language of lovers. Look at that last phrase. Never let go your hold on me for a moment. Is how R.C. Ryle was explaining this abiding in Christ, this union, this relationship that Christians, disciples have with the Lord Jesus. Never let go your hold on me for a moment. He, Jesus, is the lover of our souls. And we are to abide in him, to remain in him, to continue in him with this kind of language, this love language between us and our Savior. But how does it look in practice? That all sounds very, very nice, almost a little bit flowery, perhaps. How does it work in practice? It means that there's no aspect of our lives that we keep to ourselves or that is out of bounds to Jesus. No aspect of our lives that we keep to ourselves or that is out of bounds to Jesus. No behavior, no thoughts, no activity, no ambition, no plans, no time where Jesus is excluded or he is not welcome. No place in our lives that has a big no entry sign to Jesus. We're to be so obsessed with him, to desire him above all others and his agenda, and his rule in our lives. One other Christian author has put it like this. We are to be so personally and hopelessly in love with him that the idea of a transfer of affection never even remotely exists. We can't imagine ourselves to be without Christ. Abide in me and I in you. Unimaginable. The idea of Transferring our affection doesn't even remotely exist. Hard words. Hard to put into practice. Easy to walk away from. And so does this mean that abiding in Christ, we must give up who we are? uh, That we must give up what we're doing and we all go off into the desert and become hermits? 
or we become full-time missionaries, or church workers, or pastors. Is, is that what this is saying? Is that how it works out in practice? No. We're Christians wherever we are. We stay doing what we're doing. But we recognize what we are doing is our calling, because Paul said, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as unto the Lord. Whether it's uh, in the classroom, or the office, or the kitchen, or the building site, or at home. Our vocation is to serve Christ where we are. It's just a different way of seeing. You see, the Christian's primary goal is not the bottom line, or the 360 review, or the performance appraisals, or the exam results, or the end-of-year targets, or the deadlines. That is not the Christian's priorities. Yes, all those things are important. We spend a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of energy on them. But they're all subordinate to serving Christ. For the Christian, abiding in Christ takes priority over everything else. Quite simply, it's how we live. And so John uses this phrase, it's one of his favourite phrases, both in the Gospel here and in his letters of abiding in Christ. His favourite expression for describing what it means to be a Christian and to live as a Christian. Abide in Christ. Paul, who wrote a large number of the letters in the New Testament, had another shorthand for the same thing. Paul's shorthand tends to be in Christ. But John's abiding in Christ and Paul's in Christ mean the same kind of thing. It's, that was Paul's standout phrase to describe the Christian life. But let me explain. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, let's take some other ins that we might be in. We might say that we're in love. We might say that we're in Hong Kong. We might say that we're in hospital. We might say that we're in banking. These ins provide information about our status or our position or our career or our location. But in Christ speaks to our identity. It's who we are at the core. It defines who we really are. We are abiding in Christ. And then Jesus says that he will abide in us. So it's not just that we abide in him, but that he abides in us. How is that possible? Well, again, Christians have a pretty straightforward and quick answer for that. Because we know that through the Holy Spirit, through Christ's Spirit, that he dwells in us. He resides in us. Earlier, to these same disciples, in the same location, the upper room, Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit as a counselor, as a comforter to the disciples to be with them. You see, they may just have been getting the story, the message at that point, but Jesus, within 24 hours, would be hanging on a cross, dead. And he wanted them to know that he was not abandoning them. He wasn't leaving them on their own, so to speak. He was going away for sure, but they weren't going to be left to their own devices. And so that's why he says, John 14, 
Verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. It's the same batch of teaching. I don't know how long it was previously that he had said this, maybe an hour previously. He had said these words to them. I will give you another counsellor to be with you forever. Jesus had been their protector, their champion, their mentor up to this point. He had taught them. They had spent three years with him. They had observed him. They had listened to him. They had seen him in action. They had seen him heal the sick, raise the dead, feed the multitudes, and answer their questions. Three years of intimate contact with the Lord Jesus. These disciples had lived that. What would happen to them now that he was going away? How would they live without him? Well, they'd have the Holy Spirit, Jesus says. I'm going to send you another comforter, just like me, and you'll have him to be with you when I'm gone. Paul told the Christians in uh, Corinth once to be careful how they lived. Why were they to be careful? Because they were to, the Holy Spirit was in them. You know that your body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. The Holy Spirit who is in you. What? You know, maybe we don't take enough time to ponder these things in our fast, furious pace world and lives. God, the Holy Spirit, Christ abides in us. He's always with us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. It's an incredible thought that God should take up his residence within me, within you, within those of us who have trusted the Lord Jesus. So after assuring his disciples that Jesus Jesus would send another counsellor, he emphasises it with this point in verse... um, uh, He has already emphasised this point with these words. Anyone who loves me will obey my, my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with them. So now... Yes, he's asking for another counselor to be sent, the Holy Spirit to come. But he said, if you continue to love me and obey my teaching, my Father and I will take up our home with you. It's, it's really just the same point, rephrased. It's repeating, abide in me and I in you. The Christian life is a reciprocal life. It's a, a reciprocal relationship with Almighty God. We live in him And he says he lives in us. I should probably stop now and and, and just let you ponder that for the next half hour. We live in him and he lives in us. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. Do Do we grasp how incredible that is? How amazing it is? How wonderful it is? How splendid? How assuring it is? How confidence giving it is that God is with us through his spirit all the time. Do you remember the, the story of the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, very famous. Tongues of fire descended on the disciples that day and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were empowered to speak foreign languages. And the people that were listening thought they were drunk. But Peter stands up and says, no, they're not drunk. Something really special is happening right now before your eyes. 
What is happening is that the centuries-old words of that prophet that you know about in your, in your uh, scriptures, Joel, his words, are being fulfilled right in front of you. God is pouring out his spirit on these people and you are witnesses to it. You're observing it. And then Peter gave his audience a lesson in prophecy and the fulfillment of what God was doing through Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, who, who had been put to death on the cross just a few weeks previous, previously, who they crucified. And Peter says, he is God's Messiah. He's the one that we were waiting for. And that king of yours that you extol so much, King David, who wrote so many of the Psalms and you love to sing his songs, that king that you think is so wonderful, he called this person Lord. And now God is endorsing Jesus of Nazareth and he is endorsing and validating him and he is pouring out his spirit on his people that you're seeing as tongues of fire and people speaking in foreign languages. And the people were cut to their hearts and they were astonished and amazed at this outpouring of God's spirit and with conviction they said, what brothers what shall we do now that we have seen this with our own eyes what shall we do and peter replied repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit that's how we abide in christ and he in us these words of Pilate, uh, of peter highlight the shape and the contours of coming to the Christian faith. It includes repentance and belief and baptism and assurance of forgiveness and receiving the Holy Spirit. A very well-known American New Testament scholar, Gordon Fee, who passed away last year, he said uh, or suggested that the whole point of coming to Christian faith is to receive the Holy Spirit. It is the grace for which we long. We have a, a longing for this, a hunger for this, a passion for this. We, we want to experience God like this. And it's what the people desired on the day of Pentecost when they said, "What, brothers, what shall we do? How do we get this into our lives as well? And if Jesus had been there, he might have said, abide in me and I in you. So then, if that's the essential meaning of abiding in Christ and he in us, to what purpose is the abiding? And so to answer that, let's get back to the metaphor of John 15. There's a vine. It's the real deal. It's the true vine. There's nothing fake about it. This vine is strong, robust and authentic that Jesus is talking about the true vine and Jesus is the true vine. And there are branches too. They're connected to the vine. They're attached to it. They must be connected and attached. And we who have trusted Jesus and are his disciples are the branches. So Jesus is the true vine and we are the branches. And it is through the vine that the branches 
receive their strength, their life, their, their nutrients, their resources. Everything the branches have is derived from the vine. The branches can't live by themselves. They have to be connected. These branches, however, have one overriding purpose. I do come from a farming background, but we did not in Northern Ireland grow vines. But I've seen enough vines, and I've been in places where there are vines, and there's really only one purpose for a vine. And it's kind of obvious, isn't it? It's so that it produces grapes. A vine that doesn't produce grapes is useless. But a vine that does produce grapes that are tasty and juicy and fruity to eat or to make wine is exactly the purpose of the branches. So, in essence, the branches are there to produce fruit. So the imagery is about organic growth. It's about the, the life of the branch through the vine. The branch is continually dependent upon the vine. Hence Jesus' words, apart from me you can do nothing. And picking up this up then, one commentary has put it like this. D.A. Carson says that there are no true Christians without some measure of fruit. Fruitfulness is an infallible mark of true Christianity. Fruitfulness is an infallible mark of true Christianity. If that's true, then we need to ask ourselves, what kind of fruit is the branch expected to produce? Because it is only a metaphor, it is only an image, it's only, only a picture. We as people are not meant to produce grapes growing out of our fingers. You know, I know that's silly, but we need to get from the metaphor to real life here. So, if we consider the Old Testament, what did it say about fruitfulness? Well, in the metaphor of the vineyard there, the prophet Micah summarizes beautifully what the fruitfulness was meant to be. We know this verse, or many of you know this verse, because it's a very famous one. That God requires his people to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. If you want one verse to summarize the Old Testament, this is a pretty good one. Micah 6 verse 8. Just if you want one verse to summarize the New Testament, John 15 verse 4 is a pretty good one. I'm not saying you strip away God's word to two verses at all. But they are good summary texts and will help us to understand what the Old Testament and the New Testament are teaching. Isaiah the prophet in, in Isaiah chapter 5, I don't have the verse up there, verse 5, verse 7, talks about justice and righteousness. And Isaiah was also referring to Israel as, as the vine when he talked about justice and righteousness. So what we have here is justice, mercy, righteousness, and humility. That's the Old Testament picture of fruitfulness. What is the New Testament picture of fruitfulness? Well, the primary fruit for us as Christians, as disciples of the Lord Jesus, is to be like Christ. That's what we're meant to be. We're meant to be images of the Lord Jesus. People are meant to see Christ-likeness in our lives. And so our primary fruit is to be like Christ. It's why we must abide in him and he in us. I once heard a Bible teacher put it like this. It's quite clever. 
But it's so true. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God to change the child of God into the image of God. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God to change the child of God into the image of God. Christian conversion, coming to faith in the Lord Jesus, is for a purpose. What is the purpose? To be transformed, to be like Christ, to produce fruit. And our fruitfulness is being transformed into the image of God's Son. So fruit in this Christ life, this Christ likeness, is well summarized in Galatians. Aaron already referred to this verse this morning, and we know it well. Galatians 5, 22, uh, 2 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So that's the list. How are we doing? How am I doing? How might I describe the fruit in my life as a Christian today? Is it juicy? Or is it sour? Is it abundant? Or is it shriveled up? In reading through John 15, we see a progression. It, uh, it goes from no fruit to bearing fruit to be even more fruitful and then to bear much fruit. So where am I at right now? Where are you at right now? Is it no fruit? Is it fruit? Is it more fruit? Or is it much fruit? Because this is the purpose, the continuous purpose of abiding in Christ. I'm sure I'm not alone, but just some personal comment here. I found the last three years to be very challenging. COVID, with all its fallout, has been extremely stressful. Retiring from a job and a career that I loved has been surprisingly tough. My expectation regarding our relocation hasn't worked out. And if it matters, the financial markets haven't been very kind either. It's been a tough three years. And I know that I've allowed much of this to encroach on my spiritual equilibrium, my joy and, and peace during this season. But I've also recorded by writing down in a notebook, my journal, some of the deeper and important lessons that I've learned during this period, during this tough time. For example, it has become embedded in my thinking that even if my circumstances change for the worse, that God is good, that God is loving, and that God is present. Just think about that for a moment. To be assured, to be absolutely confident of God's goodness, of God's love, and of God's presence. That's a lesson worth living, uh, worth learning as we've lived through tough times. I've also come to accept, in the words of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, the famous hymn, 
that my life must be lived within the boundaries of what he said, whatever thou wilt, however thou wilt, and whenever thou wilt. In other words, accepting and agreeing with God's rule in my life, admitting to whatever, however, and whenever he wills it. And I confess that is not an easy lesson to learn either. And I'm still working through this one. And probably always have been and probably always will be. It's not easy. But in realizing it and recognizing it, there's release and there's freedom. Wasn't it David who said, as for God, his way is perfect. God is loving. God is good and God is present. To accept God's will for our lives in the circumstances of our lives, however, whenever, whatever. Because as for God, his way is perfect. Abide in me and I in you. And we can have joy in God's way. I've also recognized that joy comes from knowing that in Christ I'm accepted, I'm forgiven because I'm loved by God. You know, we beat ourselves up as Christians quite a lot and it would be good sometime just to abide, just to pause, just to rest and not be so concerned about what I've done, how much effort I've put in, how much of the Bible I've read, how many people I've talked to about Jesus this week. Yes, they're important. Yes, we should be doing that. But shouldn't we just be abiding and resting in Christ at times to know that we are loved, that we are accepted, and that we are forgiven? For me, these have been some of the lessons of the last three years, and they fit neatly into our framework today of abide in me and I in you. I also know, she won't like me referring to this, but Florence knows this as well, that the fruit of the Spirit in my life is erratic and non-existent at times. I can be snappy and irritable and impatient and grumpy. I know it doesn't seem like that, but just look at yourselves. (laughs) Where is the abiding in Christ? I've had to confess that at times I've been miles from where I ought to be and to ask for forgiveness, forgiveness of God and forgiveness of those who are close to me. Areas in my life needing to be pruned that I might be fruitful, bearing fruit, more fruit, bearing much fruit. So let's uh, just look briefly at, at this fruit of the Spirit again. If the gardener or the vine dresser mentioned in John 15 verse 1 came to my branch or your branch, what pruning might he have to do? Would he see love or animosity, joy or misery, peace 
or disharmony, forbearance or agitation, kindness or meanness, goodness or indifference, faithfulness or disloyalty, gentleness or harshness, self-control or excessiveness. What does the fruit of our lives look like? John 15 gives us a few pointers of how we can be more fruitful, more like Christ. First, the pruning. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes so that it would be even more fruitful. John 15, verse 1. Pruning is done by the master gardener, the Father, God. It can be painful. It may involve suffering. It will mean changes in your life and in my life. But we're assured that the pruning knife is in the hands, the most capable and safest hands in the universe. But I still might have to ask where in my life, my thoughts, my behavior, my words, does the pruning knife need to do its work? Pruning. Secondly, then, we see in verse 7 of, of uh, John 15 that abiding in Christ, we abide in Christ through his words that remain in us. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. One way to abide in Christ is to allow his words to percolate through our lives to, uh, as, as, as Paul said, may the, 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 the words of Christ dwell in you richly. They can only dwell in you richly if you read them and listen to them and if you know them. Let me simply make one point here. That as a young man, I was told that the Spirit of God can't prompt you or comfort you or counsel you with the word of Scripture that you've never read or never heard. So let's make sure that we diligently and regularly read and listen to God's word so that God's Spirit can take those words and guide us and counsel us and help us. Pruning. God's word in us. Thirdly, Jesus tells his disciples to remain in my love. Unfortunately, and fortunately, he also tells us how we can do that. If you keep my commands, you will abide in, you will remain in my love. If you keep my commands. Is there something in your life, something in my life that I know that is not obedient to Jesus? Where you're not keeping his commandments? Where there's a habit that you find hard to shake? Maybe a relationship that is inappropriate? Or somewhere you go or something you do in secret? Maybe you need help. For Christ's words to abide in us and for us to remain in Christ because we're obedient to his commands. So if you do need help, seek it out. Seek it out from mature Christians. Seek it out from uh, community group leaders, from the church leaders, from John and, and, and the others who are mature Christians in the church who will assist you and listen to you and pray for you and with you so that you can return to the lover of your soul and to abide in him.
And just in case you're worried about how I'm doing for time, I'm almost finished, even though there's still the last, the third point to make. What is the end result? From the passage, if the essential meaning is to abide or remain in Christ, and if the continual purpose is to bear fruit, to be fruitful, then the end result, Jesus says, is that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And after the last three years, we need some of that, don't we? Some of Christ's joy in our lives. Joy. Most people confuse joy with happiness when we would be better to associate it with delight or gladness. Joy is more like contentment and and a deep-seated satisfaction than it is with being happy. The satisfaction of knowing something or being something. Joy is being calm and being settled. It doesn't have to be exuberant and excited and animated, though it can be. Consider what Jesus said to his disciples on one occasion And it will help you to get to the the root of joy. He said, not what you do for God, but what God does for you. That's the agenda for rejoicing. So if you think there's not much joy in your life, or how do you get this joy? Or can I have more of this joy? then remember these words of Jesus. There's plenty to rejoice about because there is plenty that God has done for us. Having joy because we're accepted by God, we're forgiven by God, we're loved by God. Joy because our names are in the book of life. Joy because we have God's Spirit never leaving us, residing in us, always with us. Joy because Jesus, our Savior, cares for us and will never leave us or forsake us. Joy because God is good and God's ways are perfect. Because God is good and loving and present. These are some of the things that I've been dwelling on for the last number of months. During these past few years, especially during the pandemic. And knowing that if I abide in Christ and Christ abides in me, then Christ's joy will be in me. Some words from... Someone who lived centuries ago, I think 13th century Julian of Norwich said these words so well and so plainly. She wrote, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well. How can you say that? How can you say that in the fear of a pandemic? How can you say that when you lose your job? How can you say that when someone close to you is told that they've got a terminal illness? How can you say that when a child has, uh, has got a problem that you can't solve for them? How can you say, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well? Because that is the essence of joy. That is pure joy. That is knowing that I abide in Christ and Christ abides in me. Was the professor right? 
Is there one verse that captures the essence of Christianity and how we live the Christian life? I don't know. I don't know if you agree with him or agree with me. But we finish with these words once again of the Lord Jesus. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus said. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may our hearts be so filled with desiring you this morning that we want to abide in you, to have you abide in us and not wanting to do a single thing that is outside the sphere of your influence, recognising with all our hearts that without you we can do nothing. May it be so. We pray for your namesake. Amen.